Um, I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we will pray and jump right in. Okay, let's read. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak loud and clear through your word tonight, even though it's sort of an obscure passage that uh, has some information that we aren't really sure um, what to do with at first glance. Um, I pray that you would bring a beautiful application out of this passage, and may we live differently in light of your word. I pray that you would be with me and help me speak confidently, because this is your word, your authoritative breathes outward. And I pray that we would benefit from it. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so a few weeks ago, Pastor Eric closed out 1 Corinthians 15 with a killer message um, on the resurrection. You probably remember that. And if you remember, his key idea was that a life centered on Messiah means that we live in light of the end. Pastor Eric helped us see that the resurrection is surely going to happen we are going to be raised to new life with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because that is true, every day that we live has meaning because we live for God. Every moment is one to be lived in faithfulness to him, in hope and in transformed life because our eyes are set on the glorious goal, everlasting, eternal life, resurrected with God. However, as we've talked about this reality of the resurrection, though these truths are glorious and beautiful, how they actually apply to our lives today might be a little lost on us. Maybe you've asked yourself, how am I going to live in light of the resurrection today? But maybe you haven't come to any clear or practical conclusions. And I think that's where our passage tonight provides real help. In tonight's passage, Paul raises topics of the collection for the saints, his own travel plans, and some notices about co-laborers in the gospel. Though we might treat this passage uh, or this closing chapter as just some closing side comments from Paul, this chapter in fact bring, brings resurrection theology to the ground level. 
This is what resurrection life looked like for Paul and for the Corinthians. In Paul's words, we see the Bible's historicity, that Paul was a real person doing real things for real people in service to a real God. This is where resurrection theology meets real life. The transition from chapter 15 to 16 helps us get started. Paul closes chapter 15 by saying, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And now, as Paul closes out the whole letter, he's going to show the Corinthians how he himself, but also how other Christian, uh, Christian brothers are going to live out their resurrection lives, how they are going to abound in the work of the Lord. And he's also going to show his readers, including us, how we can abound in the work of the Lord too. So our key idea for tonight is life centered on Messiah means we live out our resurrection identity. Life centered on Messiah means that we live out our resurrection identity. And tonight from our passage, we will see four ways um, that we can live out resurrection idea, identity. Four ways that we live out our resurrection identity. And before we get to those four ways, I, I want to explain why I chose the language of resurrection identity. Initially, this might kind of feel like a stretch. We don't really see anything especially theological in Paul's words. But though he's not necessarily addressing anything explicitly theological or explicitly about God, his words and actions are still informed by his theology and by his identity. What he says and what he does isn't random and it's not capricious. The way he lives is shaped by who he is. Who Paul is, his identity, informs and transforms how he lives. His beliefs, his values, his loves, his relationship with God guides what he does. And it is so appropriate that this description of, I guess, the mundane of Paul's life comes right, out, right on the heels of a chapter on the resurrection. When in Jesus, you are brought from death to life, everything about you changes. When you put your trust in Jesus to save you, and when you know that death is crushed to death, and when you know that eternal life is yours to live in Christ Jesus, you yourself are made into a new creation um, who is defined by a new set of values and loves, not ones of the world, but ones that center on God. You're a new person. Identity informs action. And when you take up your resurrection identity, and let it seep into every part of your life, you will have and live a life pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so let's dig into the passage to see how this works out, how Paul's resurrection identity informs the way that he lived his life. So our first point is, we live out resurrection identity in generous life. We live out resurrection identity in generous life. In verses one through four, Paul raises the topic of the collection for the saints. And right off the bat, he gives the Corinthians a very practical way that they can live out their resurrection identities. It's in generosity. This collection for the saints was this big fundraising project where, um, that Paul initiated, where he called on a whole bunch of different churches from all around to give money for their poor and persecuted brothers and sisters in 
Jerusalem. At the time of um, Paul's third missionary journey, which is about when he, which is when he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, um, hard times had fallen on the church in Jerusalem. So Paul rallies the troops together to raise funds for funds for them. And what he calls the Corinthians to do is really clear from the passage. He says, on the first day of the week, so on Sunday, each of you is to put something aside. So Paul expected everyone to participate, um, not just the people who had a lot of money or um, a lot of money to spare, and to store it up as he may prosper. So according to what they earned, um, what they had, so that there will be no collecting when I come. That's what he says. So they were supposed to consistently and systematically set aside money for these people. And he doesn't want it to be this like last minute scramble to put money together um, when he visits. Um, he wants them to be willingly putting aside, intentionally um, saving this money up each week for this fund. Um, and it's supposed to be this continued act of faithfulness and generosity. If we look carefully at Paul's instructions, they tie this act of generosity to the Corinthians' resurrection identity. We can see that in the first verse. It's a, he says, or the first day of the week, the phrase that is used here, is this Jewish expression for Sunday. And it is similar to the phrase that's used in the Gospels to describe the day of the week on which Jesus rose from the dead. This tells us that by, the time, by this time in history, the church was meeting on Sunday to worship together as an act of remembrance of Jesus dying and rising again, enabling their own resurrection life and their unity as a church. So when Paul says, put aside money each week on the first day of the week, he's saying, remember, you who were once dead are now alive in Jesus. And so live out your new resurrection life by responding in generosity. Put aside your money for those who need it as a way of abounding in the work of the Lord. This call to give from Paul is not just because some poor people needed money and be a nice thing to give. He presents it as an opportunity for the gospel to be put on display. And Paul is intent on getting the Corinthians to participate. He wants them to live out the love that they've been shown on the cross by giving generously. God was generous in giving even his own son up to die for them so that they could have life. So there is this expectation that Paul is presenting that the Corinthians would also participate generously in response. Those who recognize they've been dealt with generously by God, in turn, will de deal generously with others. Paul elsewhere describes this collection as a test of their love. His aim is not just to get them to give away their money, but it's for them to show how God has been generous with them. They've been given much in Christ. So naturally, they also will give much. Um, unfortunately, though, Paul knew that this wasn't going to be an easy thing for them to do. You might remember that Paul has to bring up love in chapter 13, because they were pridefully abusing the things that they had for their own selfish gain, for self-promotion, for boasting. And on top of their propensity to selfishness, uh, within Greco-Roman giving culture at the time, all of it was about showing off your wealth. 
being able to give freely meant that you were powerful enough to have money and resources to spare. It was all about boasting. But rather than having this understanding of generosity, he, um, where everything is about showing off what I have, me, Paul's understanding of giving is cruciform and it's others focused. It's cruciform, it's cross-shaped in that it reflects Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Again, God showed ultimate generosity in the gospel by giving up his own son, the person that mattered most to him for the sake of others. He gave his everything. In the same way, Paul's giving calls for a heart that is willing to give everything because he has received everything in Jesus Christ. It is also others focused. And, and it's others focused in that it, it looks to the needs of others. Um, and it's focused on building up the poor Christians in Jerusalem. In this model of giving, there is absolutely no expectation for reciprocation. The Corinthians were to give without expecting anything in return, out of hearts of love for God and love for others. There's absolutely no doubt that this giving project would be a true test of their love and faith. Would they live out resurrection identities by setting aside money? Or would they withhold their money as a reflection of their lack of apprehension of gospel grace? A resistance to generosity would expose the fact that some of them probably weren't resurrected at all. We should also see that for Paul, this generosity goes deeper than just a good thing to do on Sunday. It stems from identity. He's trying to get the Corinthian Christians to see that before they are from Corinth, before they are wealthy, powerful, smart people, they're sinners saved by grace. They're resurrected people. They are servants of the God of heaven. And they are to be people of love on a mission of love. For yourself, when it comes to identity, when you introduce yourself, what do you say first? For me, I might say, hi, my name is Leighton Okada. I'm 23 years old and I'm Japanese American and born and raised in Dallas, Texas. And I work at Lighthouse Community Church and I like popcorn. And if I could have one thing come out of my belly button in an unlimited amount, it would be sour punch straws. And then somewhere pretty far down the line, if, if I'm comfortable maybe, I might say that I'm a Christian. However, in our resurrection reality, what comes first should be our resurrection identity. Before you are a student, you are a disciple of Christ. Before you are your ethnicity or nationality, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Before you are a member of your family, you are a child of God. Before you are a member of an organization or group or school or team, you are a member of the body of Christ. Before you are a musician or an artist, an athlete, a gamer, you are one of Christ's redeemed. Resurrection identity invades everything that you are. It invades the ways that you spend your time, your finances, your thoughts, your relationships. Resurrection identity results in a 
completely sold out life for Christ and his mission to make disciples of all nations, a life that is completely committed to making the love of Christ and his resurrection life known to all people. That's what comfort comes first. And so this is what underlies all of Paul's exhortation to generosity. As a Christian, eternal resurrection life is with Jesus is your defining trait. It's the crux of your reality. And um, living out that identity which, with eyes set on the end goal would free the Corinthians to throw away elitism, to throw away pride and fear of man, and just give generously out of selfless love. If they truly apprehended gospel grace, then they will naturally respond in generosity. And the same thing is true for you. A true understanding of God's generosity with you will naturally result in a response of generosity toward others. For y'all, of course, money might not be something that you have right now to give. But finances are not the only thing that God asks us to be generous with. If you have truly grasped the beauty, beautiful truth that God has been generous with you in giving you his son, then you will be generous with what you have to. You will be generous with your time. You'll find ways to serve and love the church. You'll be willing to help others. You'll be willing to spend time with friends and hear out their troubles. You will be generous in sharing your heart with your friends, in opening up and in being available. You'll be generous in patience with others, especially when they make you angry or say hurtful things. You'll be generous with the things that you have and you'll be willing to share those things. You'll be generous with your giftings and your skills. You'll be generous in serving your parents and your family. You'll go out of your way to help them, to serve them. You'll be generous with what you know and the biblical knowledge that God has blessed you with. Of course, this kind of generosity isn't easy. It goes against all of our inclinations to enjoy now and to feast now and to indulge and be happy now. But realize that for those who live resurrection life now, we have everything we need and more in Christ. And every day into eternity is just enjoying more of what God has generously given us in him. This allows us to be completely and radically others focused when it comes to the things that we have, be it time, money, knowledge, skills, etc. God has generously lavished his love on you, so now you can generously bless others. Generosity is a fruit of your resurrection identity. Okay, let's look at point two. Point two is we live out resurrection identity in submissive life. We live out resurrection identity in submissive life. Um, we're looking at verses five through nine here. Okay, so in this section, Paul gives us a glimpse of his travel plans. And they seem pretty simple. So essentially what he says is eventually he's going to go to Macedonia and then to Corinth and spend a good chunk of time with the Corinthians. He really wants to see them and he wants to spend time with them. But for right now, He's staying in Ephesus, where he's writing from, for just a little longer because um, he's in the middle of a really fruitful ministry, a really fruitful ministry, what he calls a wide door for effective work. 
And so in his writing here, a key phrase that should stand out to us is, if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits, in verse 7. If the Lord permits. We should kind of be shocked at how Paul thinks about his plans. He really wants to go see um, the people in Corinth. He, he loves them, but he can't unless the Lord allows. Surely his relationship with the Corinthians was rocky, really messy and complex. After all, he was the one to first bring the gospel to them um, and establish, help establish their church. But he spends the majority of the book rebuking and correcting them for their immorality and their pride and elitism and lack of love. However, through encouragement and through rebuke, over and under all of this is this enduring love for his brothers and sisters in Corinth. He is deeply committed to them. He's committed to their holiness and their love and their discipleship to God. He loves them. However, even though he does, even visiting these people that he loves is a plan that must be submitted to the will of the Lord. Everything that he plans depends on one thing, the permission of God. And by Paul's example here, we also are called to live a life submitted to the authority and permission of God, his plans, his timing. But consider, is that actually how you live? Sure, we might say often, the Lord is will, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing. But do you actually mean that? Are your plans actually submitted to his will? Do you, or, or do you simply use if the Lord wills as some pious platitude to feign godliness while your plans still actually lay in your own hands? That is not how Paul views his life. As good of a thing it would be to visit Corinth, he must stay in Ephesus because of the fruitful ministry going on. He cannot disobey God. Imagine yourself in a similar situation. Have you ever had to give up something that you love to obey God? Who are the people you love? Who are your closest friends, your, your family, the people in life who just warm your heart? Or what are the things that you love doing? Now, what if you were called into a season where you had to give those things up to honor the Lord. In God's economy, there are things we have to sacrifice occasionally to obey his, his will. It's part of living out a cruciform resurrection lifestyle out of a resurrection identity. Remember, Jesus himself sacrificed his life to secure your eternal life. He submitted himself to the will of the Father that was hard to obey for the sake of your salvation. And in taking on a resurrection identity, there are seasons when the Lord calls us to do the same, to say no to good desires for greater good. For example, right now, you're a student, you're in school. That means you've been called to obedience and faithfulness in your schoolwork. It means doing the hard work of putting your head down and studying some nights. I mean, maybe giving up video games to be diligent in, in what God has assigned to you right now. You are also children of parents. 
That means that you are called to obey your parents. It means submitting it to their authority and obeying their wills because they know what's best and are doing what's best for you. In these, in these ways, we submit ourselves to God who truly and ultimately knows best and also will give you truly what is best. For myself right now, as I was thinking about this application, I realized that it's really timely for me. Um, because I'm in seminary, there are a lot of things that I've had to give up for obedience to God and for the sake of something better. You all know that I'm a, a photographer and a musician. And now that I'm in school, I've had to give up making music as much as I used to and going to see the ocean and taking pictures and spending time with people, photographing people. I've had to give up all these things so that I can prep for my messages so that I can do my homework. I even had to give up um, a, a, a side job, my photography. And of course, I would be loving to, I would love to be doing those things. And those are all really good things. But right now, obedience to God in school looks like saying no to those things so I can have something better. So that I can be here with you tonight. Now, whatever the effective work um, in, in verse 9 that Paul mentions, whatever that, had, that was for Paul, he had to stay and see it through. For the sake of ultimate good in Ephesus, Paul had to have a loose grip on his own plans, on seeing, his, on seeing the church of Corinth. And plans and circumstances could change. God could provide opportunities for ministry elsewhere. And Paul would have to be submitted to God. And really, that's only possible because his singular focus is on furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations. Paul's commitment goes deep to the point that even adversaries opposed him and his work, but those things only added fuel to the, the fire of his commitment to doing what God has, had assigned him, to obeying God. And when it comes to at least gospel ministry, this isn't a model that's only for pastors and for interns like me and for people who work at churches. Our lives, all of us, every Christian, needs to be committed to furthering the gospel. All of life for all Christians should be in submission to the will of God, and all of it should be aimed at furthering the gospel. And these things really do come down to identity. Who is your authority? Who are you? And who do you live for? The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do you actually believe that God knows better than you? Do you actually believe that life lived in submission to God is the best life to live? When God calls you to live submissively to him, he's not trying to kill your happiness. He's trying to give you true happiness. He's not trying to take away good things from you so that you're unhappy and devoid of pleasure like some ascetic monk in the mountains. But he's trying to give you what is actually good, what is eternally satisfying, what is solidly trustworthy. He's trying to give you himself. We'll come back to some of these ideas when we get to point four, but for now, let's go to point three. Point three is we live out resurrection identity in communal life. 
Okay, so now we're looking at the last section of our passage when he's talking about co-workers in the gospel. And the two that he mentions are Timothy and Apollos. Timothy and Apollos. So I won't really focus on Timothy because he's a little bit more well-known. Um, think of him as Paul's right-hand man, his child in the faith. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians in this passage is that Timothy is coming to visit them to enforce Paul's teaching, and they need to be nice to him. But I want to focus our attention on the second guy mentioned, Apollos. So you might recognize this name from earlier in um, the book of 1 Corinthians in chapters 1 and 3. So the Bible tells us that Apollos was this guy from Alexandria, Egypt, um, and he was really eloquent and competent in the scriptures. Alexandria was known as an intellectual center, um, and so there's absolutely no doubt that, that Apollos was super talented, but also super smart. He for sure knew his Old Testament super well. And not only that, but he's also passionate and bold. Acts 18 tells us that um, Apollos greatly helped the Corinthian believers by powerfully refuting Jew Jews in public debates by showing that Jesus was actually the Christ. So Apollos fits this description of the quintessential pastor. From what we know about him, it seems as if he had everything that he needed to be an amazing minister for Christ. And if you were in Paul's shoes, how would you feel? How would you feel if you're running around trying not to get killed while faithfully preaching the gospel when suddenly this guy just shows up and is literally everything that you want to be and just starts preaching and blessing the church that you planted and uh, starts bringing people to Christ? you would probably feel threatened. You would be jealous. You would be angry. Apollos, why are you stealing my work? Why are you stealing my spotlight? Why are you stealing my stage? But how does Paul actually respond? What is his relationship with Apollos actually like? We can see pretty clearly um, that Paul is not threatened by Apollos at all. In fact, they are a team, two gospel ministers working side by side toward the same goal. Why else would he have urged Apollos to come to, the, to visit the Corinthians? If you remember 1 Corinthians 3, the Corinthians had actually made some drama and divisions about um, Paul and Apollos. There were people who were like, I follow Paul, and people were like, I follow Apollos. Um, but Paul's point in that chapter is that Paul and Apollos are on the same team. They both equally serve King Jesus. And all glory and honor and praise and allegiance goes to Jesus, who gives the growth resulting from the faithful watering of his servants, Paul and Apollos. There is no power struggle going on between Paul and Apollos. They are on the same team, striving for the same goal. That's why in verse 12, Paul can... Paul, Apollos, his brother. That's why Paul can excitedly urge him to go back to the church in Corinth, because they are united in Christ. For us, do you treat other Christians, especially Christians in this youth group, like you're on the same team? Like you're actually true brothers and sisters walking alongside each other? 
if you have difficulty answering that question, let me think, let me help you think about it by raising some examples of attitudes or behaviors that you'll experience if you're not thinking this way. If you don't see your youth peers as brothers and sisters on the same team Jesus, you'll feel threatened by other people in youth group. You'll think, oh, she's a little bit too pretty. I don't like her. Or she's a little too talented. Not. You'll be exclusive and you'll be clicky. You'll purposefully leave out certain individuals who you just don't vibe with. You'll be exclusive with the people that you talk to. You'll say biting things to each other um, or about each other behind closed doors or over text. You'll, gr your group chats will be filled with crude joking, with worldliness and with snarkiness. You'll judge others. You'll judge the ones who you think are a little too innocent and a little too, and all goody two shoes. The one who, the, you'll judge the ones who are trying to be honest before God and kind to others. You'll judge the ones who hold you to biblical standards. You'll judge the ones who call you out when you're being unkind and ungodly. You'll judge the ones who you don't think fit in. Like we are all on the same team. And if we ever see these things, we have to look to Christ. As we walk together side by side for the sake of the gospel, there is no room for antagonism, judgment, clickiness, exclusivity, jealousy, worldliness. We may be, on, in, be different in various ways, but we are all loved by God and part of one family. Okay, the last characteristic um, of, or the last way that we live out resurrection identity is in flexible life. Flexible life. Okay. Resurrection life. Oh, sorry. Resurrection life lived out of resurrection identity is flexible. It looks like adaptability. It looks like obedience and faithfulness to God when what he plans for your life is different from what you plan. This is really similar to our second point. And in fact, it actually builds off of it. In our second point, we saw that Paul is completely submitted to God in everything, including his plans. And even though his plans are well thought out, they're specific and intentional, all of it sits under the permission of the Lord. Point two shows us what resurrection life looks like when the Lord permits. But here, point four, what we see is what resurrection life looks like when God says no. Paul says, I strongly urged him, Apollos, to, to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. Knowing what we know about Apollos, it, that, this should kind of perplex us. Surely Apollos would have loved to visit the Corinthians. And it's certainly true that the Corinthians would have loved to see him too. The way that Paul brings up Apollos um, is by saying, now concerning our brother, which probably means that the Corinthians had actually asked about him um, and when he was going to come visit in prior correspondence. But if that's the case, if they were itching to see him, then why wouldn't it have been Apollos's will to go? What could have kept him from being willing to go? Take a look at the text again. If you're reading the ESV, 
you might have a little footnote after, after the word, word will. And the footnote says, or God's will for him. Paul could be saying here that he had urged Apollos to go, but it actually wasn't God's will for him to go. It wasn't God's will, so he didn't, sit, so he didn't go. Now, we don't know exactly why God didn't allow Apollos to go, but the specifics of why he didn't come aren't important. What is important is that he would come if he could, but at the moment, it was not the Lord's will. Apollos' snapshot here tells us what happens. Um, or sorry, Apollos' snapshot here tells us that God's no is a no. There is no defying God's will. And when God says no, there's no fighting hard for what you want. There's no defying fate. And there's no making your dreams dreams when they don't align with God. When God closes a door, you have no choice to you have no choice but to obey and say, "Okay, I trust you." But what, why would God have said no to something good? Of course, Paul doesn't have an answer to that question. After all, Paul is not God. Um, but I think Paul's silence on the details of why um, or what Paul would, will be doing in the meantime is actually really fitting. It, again, God said no. Apollos will, will come when God allows, and that's that. Apollos will continue to do his ministry elsewhere. He'll continue living his resurrection life in faithfulness to God, but no is no. And Apollos is going to be faithful where God has him. What do you do when God says no? When life doesn't go as you planned, and when things don't turn out the way that you wanted them, how will you respond? What happens when God says no to UCLA? What happens when God says no to your dream job? What happens when God says no to the career path that you've been working so hard for? What happens when God breaks up your relationship with the guy who you thought was the one? What happens when God doesn't let you make the team or get the role or get that perfect score or get that job that you were working really hard for? Will you kick and scream? Will you complain and accuse? Will you pout and tell God that he messed up? Will you doubt God's goodness? Or will you say, God, your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts? Will you say, God, you are God and I am not? When God's plans are different from our own, we need to learn to say yes to God and to continue in obedience and faithfulness to him, even when we don't understand and even when our desires and emotions and yearnings tell us to do otherwise. When the door is closed, we don't sit around on our hands and wait for the door to open again. We stop and we ask ourselves, how will I live faithfully now? How am I going to obey now? And I know that sounds really hard, but you just have to trust me. Trust me that when I say that, trust me when I say that God is still good when he says no. God is still loving you when he says no. In fact, God is loving you by saying no. 
And if you ever doubt that, remember the plan that God enacted for the redemption of this world. When all of mankind was destined for destruction, condemnation, death under eternal judgment for wretched sin, God stepped in to time himself to alter our destiny from hellbound to secure in heaven. When you were in fact destined for eternal death, God sacrificed his own son on, on your behalf so that you would have eternal life. He has already proved the extent of his love. He's already proved his intent to bring an ultimately good end to your story because he has ensured an ultimately good end to the story. A God who loves like this is not going to mess up your life. In his love, he's going to give you exactly what you need, exactly what is good for you, even if it's not what you want, even if it's not what you planned. And all you have to do is simply obey, trust, be faithful, say yes. God has infinite power to lay out the circumstances of our lives with intimate care for ultimate good. The life in light of the resurrection submits to the God who knows all things with the confidence that one day in new resurrection life, we're going to look back on the tapestry of God's providence and see how he weaved every yes and every no, every disappointment and every joy into his story of redemption. God knows what he's doing. So rest, take it slow, and obey. He's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friends, do you actually believe that God knows what's best for you? And can you give and can give what's best for you? Do you believe that? Do you trust it? Be excited when God says no. Because that means there's something better in store. Guys, when I applied to college, all I wanted was to either get into a music program an art program, or go to Yale. And God said no to my Yale plan really fast. Uh, but everything else I was going for was going to be how God told me what he wanted me to do with, with my life. I was just so sure that I, if I just did everything right, that, that he would give me what I wanted and it would be good. But my rejections came fast. One after another, God said no to each and every one of my plans. He said no to music. He said no to art. He said no to teaching. He said no to almost everything except a few schools in California that didn't really want me and, and said that they would only take me if I started late. I was devastated. I was confused was angry. I thought that I had done everything right. And I just could not understand why God had said no to everything that I wanted. But now, four years later, 
I'm here. I have a relationship with my savior. I'm working my dream job on a staff with my best friends. I get to be with you every Friday, opening the word of God with you, walking side by side with you, loving and learning with you. And if five years ago, I had said, God, you messed up. This isn't right. Give me what I want. And if for some strange reason, God had said, okay, yeah, sorry, I messed up. You're right. Sorry, Leighton. Um, we should just do it your way. If God had said, let's do it your way, then I would not be enjoying all of the good gifts that God has blessed me with that came with him having his way. I would not be on a path of ministry for the most important message that exists. I would not be enjoying life with you. Who knows where I would be? His way is truly the best way. Will you trust him? Living a generous life, a submissive life, a communal life, and a flexible life is the good life. And it's all because these stem from resurrection identity invading and transforming all that we are. Friends, let's live out our resurrection identities by being generous, by being submissive to God, by being communal and flexible with our plans. God knows best. Let's trust him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we need help to believe that you do know what's best. Um, and we need help to submit all of the things of our lives, our, 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 our futures, and our loves, our passions. We need help to bring all of it under your authority, because our hearts are so drawn to obey ourselves, to think that we know what's best, to trust ourselves. So God, I pray that you would humble us. Father, remind us who we are in Christ. Remind us of our resurrected identities. And I pray that you would help us every day to allow that identity to infiltrate everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think. May it infiltrate our plans and our relationships and the things that we have. And I pray that, that we would learn to live in, in every way lives that are submitted to you and that honor you, that obey you, that worship you, and that seek the good of others. Help us now in our time of small groups to reflect, to apply, to walk with each other, and to love you in the way that we build relationships and apply this message to our lives. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.